As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there. Welcome to The Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic with The Square Ball. Dan and Michael from The Square Ball from The Athletic. Here's Phil Hay. Hello. Uh, if you're not subscribed to The Athletic, if you want to read all Phil's stuff, all the lead stuff is on there. Everything else on the site, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. The offer is pound a month for six months at the minute. And um, we're going to be talking about Rodrigo today, aren't we, in part two, having a bit of a, a deep dive on him and you've wrote about him this week yeah a little bit about his role in um, what Jesse Marsh calls the leadership council um, at Leeds United basically the group of, of senior players um, that, they, that they've that they put together and the way in which he's trying to get Rodrigo more involved in that and, and trying to make a go of a transfer that still hasn't clicked two years on you want to read that then go to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod and get the offer pound a month for six months we'll get around to all that and you, you're fresh out of the, the press conference at Thor Parch that happened on Thursday morning and we're getting to learn a little bit more about Jesse Marsh and his methods and and where this is all heading don't we obviously it's all going to be based on results so let's deal with the last couple of results that we had we recorded ahead of Villa which feels like a lifetime ago given that we went through a lifetime's worth of emotions at the end of the Norwich game I do feel more and more that football is just heroin in non-narcotic form <laughs> really it's incredibly bad for you but the the peaks kind of keep you keep you at it. Is um, that your experience, Phil? Well, I should probably say that I've never actually taken heroin. Yeah, right. um, although the general anaesthetic that I had for the, the operation last year was probably as close to <laughs> that thing people talk about chasing the dragon, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and it was actually pretty good. Um, but but don't do drugs, kids. Um, this has got off to a slightly weird start, as to be said. Uh, the, it, it felt season-defining at 1-0 against Norwich, and it felt season-defining at 2-1 um, after Gilhart scored. And after the game, once the dust settled slightly, people in front of us in the press box were just in hysterical laughter. It was just really funny. I mean, I know it was such a critical moment and, and the season could rest on that goal. You know, that that could be the difference for Leeds when, when it comes to it. But the whole occasion, I, I say this week after week, a lot of the journals who come from the Athletic and sit with me um, at Ellen Road, it just are there saying this place is completely mental. Like, you just don't you don't really get this across across the Premier League, but in in, in the country generally it is a kind of unique stadium. It goes back to what I was saying a few weeks ago about something about Leeds just being distinctly Leeds and, and being distinctly unlike everywhere else. But it was a fabulous moment and it was it was so necessary. I can only compare the moment where Norwich scored, which was a weird moment anyway, because the fourth official's board had gone up right at that moment. So everybody was looking at the board thinking, oh joy, six minutes. And suddenly the ball was in the net. And I can't pretend to have seen the goal because I didn't. I was looking for the, the time the time that was going to be added on. And I can only compare that moment to Alan Lee scoring for Ipswich back in 2007 when, when Leeds got relegated. And it was much later in the season and it, that, was, that was kind of it. But that feeling in the stadium of we are going here, you know, this is, this, it was going to be a point, fair enough. But it wasn't enough. And the mood was, we are in deep trouble. We are yeah. in deep trouble. I, I don't think in that instant, the stadium thought Leeds were getting out of that. No. And then <laughs> suddenly that goal, which was a fantastic goal. I mean, the header from Gilhart to begin with was Ben Gibson took the, the gamble that the ball was coming to him rather than going to attack it. But Gilhart took the chance to attack it and a lovely cushion ball 
into the only position that was going to let Leeds and Rafinha get onto it and, and go after it. But Rafinha's poise as well, and then the common sense to cut it back rather than shoot from an angle, which Norwich probably would have had covered and, and would have asked a lot of him to finish, was just absolutely perfect. And there was Gelhart, and the good thing about Gelhart is you know that he will score from much further out, further out than that, and from two yards he is not going to miss. It's so true what you say about the board, and I think over the course of the last week on our shows and on Twitter, everyone's kind of broken down the individual brilliant moments of of what happened there. But you're right as well, one of the other little details, and, and I'm going back through the, the sort of mental gymnastics I went through at that moment, because I did the same as you. I, I looked over and I'd seen that it was six minutes, just a fraction before the announcement was made. But the ball went into the net as the announcement was being made. But by that time, my brain was processing, oh, six minutes, that's quite a lot. And then they scored. And then I thought, well, actually, six minutes is probably good for us. If there's one remaining glimmer of hope in this, it's that we've actually got a bit of time to do do something now. I didn't feel there was any hope. I've got to be honest. When that, you don't when, say when this. That went in. But there wasn't in the stadium. There was just a no. weird... I mean, colour me surprised. There was a weird silence about it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm seeing the the goal go in from the, the cop end and it always takes a little bit of time to process goals at the far end because you you get particularly it's an away goal because you get a bit of a lag on the sound of the away fans and you the kind of sound of the ball hitting the net or whatever just takes a little bit of time to travel and you see it and you watch it unfold and you go and my thought was well that's it then the goal was really quick as well though it was dead direct so a long ball to Pookie Pookie straight away bang into the box and McLean sliding in so you looked up and the ball was just bouncing about in the net and you had no idea how it had got there or, or thought, what had happened. Hang on, and that's not fair. But <laughs> but because of that, there was just this completely shocked silence around us. Everybody everybody kind of digested the fact that they had actually equalised and it was the 91st minute and suddenly six minutes of injury time didn't feel like anywhere near long enough. The reaction to the Gilhart goal, I think it said a lot about how starved the stadium has been of a great deal this season. It there hasn't been a lot to cling on to. There've been really big moments or crucial moments, um, like you know Brentford, the Bamford equaliser, the late goal against Palace, the Burnley on on New Year's Day, which was obviously the the big hug between um, Marcelo Bielsa and his assistant Pablo Quiroga. But you know, going back to Palace, that was November, and Brentford was the beginning of December. And yes, Leeds were under pressure at that point, and the results weren't coming as they needed to come. But there was so much football left, and so many fixtures left that you could ride poor form and you could ride poor results at that stage. That on on Sunday, particularly on the back of the Villa game, two fixtures which I think we'd all agreed they needed four stroke six points from. Um, and in the end, you'd be very happy to come out with three. But to have left those two fixtures with one, and that's how it looked in, in the 91st minute, you could just feel the belief of the crowd just fading completely. And I totally understand why. It, it was I, disastrous, I, wasn't it? Yeah. The, I, I had the thought flashing through my head of, this is going one way now. And and that depressing thought about what the narrative was going to be, what you'd be having to write if it did all, all go wrong. And then one 10 second moment changes it all. And without wanting to preempt anything, that should make a huge difference to the way the, the players are feeling. You're right as well. I'm just looking down this season's results and we beat Watford at home, we beat Palace at home and Burnley at home. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then Norwich. So prior to, let's ignore Norwich. So three league home games prior to this that we've won we've been we've had no fun have we this year at all it's not been it's not been a very nice experience being there and yet as you said the crowd's been amazing and um we've got the was there a league cup win we can uh, we can add on to that we actually managed to win one game at home didn't we against crew that's right so so we've seen prior to norwich we've seen four victories at ellen road in seven and a half eight months and this is a club who strangely you know after so long of being fairly mediocre in the championship became used to winning all the time you know and under bielsa it was just the regularity of of putting wins on the board, but also pretty spectacular ones. You know, not not necessarily in terms of the scoreline because Leeds weren't always a high scoring team under under Bielsa, but the way they played made them so engaging and, and such a treat to watch. And it has asked more of the crowd this season. And I've got to say once again, I didn't think the crowd went on Sunday as in turned at all when that goal went in. It was just it felt like resignation. You know, it was that quiet thing of if we can't beat Norwich at home and you can't pretend it's an easy fixture because relegation games like that with a lot of pressure on are not they're not as nowhere near as simple as it looks just by staring at the, the table in plain sight but if you can't beat Norwich at home and you're already on a run like Leeds were on where are the points coming from Thursday was totally different I mean Thursday was a was just a, a, a complete explosion of 
frustration and, and anger and, and dissatisfaction, which to be quite honest, I think has been coming. I think the crowd have been pushed pretty far and I think they have been incredibly, incredibly durable actually, given how, how tense it's become. But Thursday was a horrible, horrible night and, and a really, really bad night for Marsh as well, considering it was his first home game. Yeah, I and mean, we'll get into the sort of tactical aspects of it, I guess, when we um, as we go through the show. I, I wonder what um, what you made of the chance of Marcelo Bielsa at, at 3-0. I think that was... Was, direct- that, was that directed at the board? Yeah, no, yeah. 100%. I mean, it, it seemed to me that everything was going at the board. You know, there were people who were um, gesticulating towards Radrazani and Orta and Kinnear in there. Some people rubbing their fingers, you know, spend more money, that sort of thing, the chance about Bielsa, because there are clearly a lot of people who, who think that shouldn't have happened. There'll be nobody who'll be pleased about the fact that Bielsa has gone, but there are a lot of people who think they should have stuck with Bielsa to the end. And that with, you know, players coming back like Bamford as he was on Sunday and, and we've got Phillips and Cooper now in contention for the Wolves game, not to say they'll play, but, you know, they, they are now back in training. Perhaps that would have made a, a significant difference too. But it, it, it was pretty poisonous. And I think it was just that feeling of, you've changed this, we've lost at Leicester, we've lost at home to Villa. The thing about the Villa performance was that looked like a team who were going down. If, if you are going to make the argument about there being three worse teams than Leeds, you cannot play like that. You know, if you look like that, you look like one of the worst teams in the division, if not the worst team in the division. And it helped Villa that Villa were under no pressure. I, I was looking at the body language in the second half as it was all going their way. And you could tell that because they were beyond 30 points and because the season was in control, they were enjoying it and they were being able to play with a bit of a swagger. And it has to be said that teams tend to enjoy going to grounds where it feels like it's imploding a bit or it feels like it's, you know, it's a bit of a powder keg in a, in a negative sense for the home side. And Villa played with that really well, I thought. But there was such a difference between one side who were clearly safe, one side who were absolutely not safe. And I think even Marsh realised he, he didn't pull many punches afterwards in saying... We were poor, nothing worked, the pressing wasn't good enough. I think he realised that in that sort of state, there was no getting out of it. They had to play better than that. And they thrashed it all out in the dressing room afterwards as well. They did, which needed to be done. And, and he, he kind of left them to it on Thursday night. I think he just felt that the players needed to say what, what had to be said. And I kind of touched on this before, but there has obviously been a lot said about the players themselves and criticism of the performances. But I still feel that there are a lot of people in that dressing room who've devoted a hell of a lot to the Bielsa era and he's done great things for, for them no question about that but they've equally done really good things for Bielsa and I, I don't think there's been any kind of lack of lack of commitment from the, the core of the squad and it was quite telling I think on Thursday that they themselves were sitting saying if we carry on like this there's only one way we're going this is not going to turn itself around if we just kind of meander forward and then Marsh had them in on Friday and there were a lot of individual meetings there were a lot of collective meetings Rodrigo was somebody that he specifically wanted to speak to I think to say Look, you're a Spain international, you're a proven footballer, played in Europe, you've played at a very high level. You're also, at that time of life, late 20s, early 30s, where you should be an influential presence here. And I think he wanted to say to Rodrigo, you are really important to me. You know, you're important as part of the team, but you're also important off the pitch. So he's one of the people who's been added to this leadership group. A bit of foreign representation, which is not a bad idea, I don't think, given how cosmopolitan the squad is but also just to broaden it and widen it and have more voices in there, to have more more opinions. And I guess just to help with channels of communication, which is really important um, at a time like this. And that seemed to me to be Marsh's approach to, to dealing with the Villa game was to speak to people and to talk to them, to communicate with them and, and to try to say to everybody, look, let's just get on the same page here because if we do, the season's still there to be salvaged. I think the depression of the Villa game came from the fact we'd thrown the Bielsa project away and at Villa, you were left thinking, have we thrown it away for this? Because this isn't what the point of it. We were we were st- getting rid of him so we could stay in games and we could be competitive and we'd tighten up defensively. And a bit like the Leicester game, we might not necessarily win, but we can at least get to the last half hour of a game with a chance of winning it. And that game was gone pretty early on, I felt like. Even by half time, people were kind of, you know, it didn't look like turning around. And there was there was a little spell, wasn't there, at the start of the second half where it looked like we might get in. But mm-hmm. generally it, speaking, we were, we were taken apart very, very easily. It was basically dreadful. And there were issues in it that were not dissimilar to what had been happening to Bielsa. I mean, the first goal where Dallas gets sucked out and Dina has all the time in the world to go down the left. And I, I never looked back on at the challenge on Watkins because obviously Coutinho scored regardless in that attack. But there, there would be a shout for a penalty there anyway. And they were just incomplete disarray and that was one of the things you know when Marsh came in he'd said I will change the zonal marking because 
I want to limit the concessions of goals and I want to stop us being so vulnerable in transition. Well, it doesn't look like that's that's changed at all. He said he, he had a plan for Coutinho. Coutinho scores unmarked, you know, for, for the first goal. It was just all wrong. And he admitted as much and he, he said afterwards, you know, I, I can't, you know, he said he, he pretty much underestimated the, the pressure and the stress that the players were feeling. Do you think it just came too soon, that game, a little bit? Well, do you remember we were chatting a couple of weeks back and, and I sort of said that the timing of the rearranged games didn't seem great because it, it bombed Liverpool in between Man United and Spurs, which for Bielsa made that a really difficult week and the sort of week where you might get badly exposed to the extent where people lose confidence in what you're doing. And then with Villa, they did a very good game against Southampton the previous weekend, but they are a side who win games when they and play well when they get going. And that falling before Norwich... I think was probably not ideal. It was a very winnable game if you played well, but I think it, it might have helped Marsh to have had a clear week between Leicester and, and Norwich building up to that. As it turns out, and, and having beaten Norwich in the way that, that they did, I think they could finish the week, I don't know about happy, but they could finish the week feeling far more upbeat than, than mm. they would have done would have done otherwise. But yeah, I, I don't think the timing of the Villa game was great. And, I, and, and you know, from Bielsa's point of view, I think it's only fair to say that the time of the Liverpool one wasn't brilliant either. Mm. I mean, Michael, you did predict three points out of these two games, so you absolutely got it spot on. Your, po- your pessimism was right, relative pessimism. This shows how little I think of Norwich, doesn't it, that I thought we'd, <laughs> that, I, that I didn't think we would beat them. Mind you, it, it did, didn't half hurt when they were singing you going down with the Norwich, which speaks to both their outlook on this and the sort of trouble we were in. And I mean, as, we've, as so many people have said, wasn't it just magical that they were singing, you're not singing anymore as that ball got nodded onto Rafinha. Bang. And you, you say, it's, it's just a work of art. All the different things that happened in that sequence to make it just one of those perfect football moments. But what did you think, because we've spoken a lot about it this week, but what was going through your head when that ball went in for the equaliser, first of all, and that sort of three minutes, what's going through your head as a journalist? The stuff that flashes before your face is the thought of having to cover and write about a club who are going down. Because it's, as I've found before, when, and it was a long time ago now when it happened, it's thoroughly depressing. There's there's nothing positive to dig out of it. And it does tend to become quite all-consuming. And that's just not how it's been at Leeds for the last three years, even even up to, to Christmas, you know, no, and, and later than that, there's no sense of panic particularly. It wasn't going well, but it wasn't as if it, it felt like it was all totally coming apart at the seams. And suddenly you felt like you were looking at a different club and you asking yourself, how is this going to sort itself out? Is it going to sort itself out? Because a, a poor result against Norwich would have put huge pressure on Marsh. There's absolutely no doubt about that. We we got onto his contract last week. You know the fact that it runs to 2025. If you get really, if you come in and take over a squad where a club are saying to you, "Look, it's your job to keep them up. We think you can do that. We don't think the last head coach will." So we're making this change. If it doesn't work, you're then immediately having to say, to, and this is going on already, really, or was was going on when Marsh first came in, but you're having to say to people, i.e. the crowd particularly, you're going to have to trust me here. But when you've been relegated, people start to say, well, on what basis, you know? And and, and you're automatically at quite a, quite a low ebb in terms of people's expectation for you. As it is, it does give them something to cling to massively. And again, and, and we used to say this about Bielsa, it puts them in a position where if they go to Wolves and win, suddenly it's seven points to the bottom three and seven points is a massive gap and yes there are games in hand but not all of those games in hand are going to do anything for the teams who who have them so it puts them now again on the edge of, of a situation where they could bring it all under control pretty quickly we're, that's we're, the we difference. Are, we're back to one game being the, the transformation of the season uh, again uh, aren't we as it was against Newcastle yeah, I yeah. still feel I, I do think that's how close it was and so we go from a situation where you're mentally running through the idea of penning these awful articles and then that happens. How, how did you react? And you've always said like in the past, you've got to behave yourself in the press box. There's kind of an etiquette there. You know, you don't start rubbing anyone's face in it. You don't celebrate like a fan. We know oh, you, I, you oh, I, did, I did rub Michael Bailey's face in it. Yeah, oh. no, it was, right, it was right next to me. Did Michael have any uh, any thoughts on the, the PA was humming a little bit? He was happy with the PA system. Or was no, it because it wasn't Because it, it was uh, in 2019. In the cop, it was definitely humming. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say in 2019, he did uh, imply there was, I mean, he stated it outright, maybe there was a psyops thing going on. He um, did, bless him. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> pumping um, out, pumping out a, white he's, noise. He's a nice guy, Michael. He's, and and he's, <laughs> he's incredibly devoted Norwich writer, actually. Um, if, if you think about it from his point of view, it's bouncing back and forward constantly, yeah. and here they, here they go again. Um, I will say he did a video um, that he put out at full time from the West Stand and I think we saw the 
the Legion United Wi-Fi slash uh, 4G in uh, in operation. It looked a little bit like a sort of a grainy hostage video. But um, was, I've watched was, several of his videos this yeah. year, and he he just seems very. He's very fair. He's very fair in accepting that Norwich are going down. It has yeah, been for quite think, some time. I think so. I think most people, um, most people in Norwich, Norwich are. Sorry, you were saying I, I, you were saying about how you rubbed his face in it anyway. Well, well <laughs> it would it would have been very difficult this week it, had it been a draw against Norwich not to have felt yourself compelled to get into the issues of what are the consequences of this going to be and you know you don't want to go too early with that but I think that would have been what a lot of people would have been talking about this yeah. week you know is this actually heading for the worst case scenario are, are they going down but you feel it straight away with a goal like Gilhart's you you feel the extent of the change you can't really explain it and you can't really it's quite hard to describe I mean our, our headline on Monday was just <laughs> Leeds United bloody hell because that's what it that's what it was and if you're going to be totally sober about it you say well it's a scraped win against the worst team in the Premier League, but it was just so much bigger than that, so much bigger than that. And I think the, the timing of the goal in particular so soon after Norwich looked to have popped the balloon completely, absolutely crucial. So, so how did you rub his face in it? Uh, well, you know, I just sat there giving it a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> I mean, as I say, the, the funny thing was that everybody in front of me was just laughing after the game. You know, it was, it was, it was just a funny, funny moment. And, the stadium's earned that, 100% earned that, because it's been hard going. It's been really hard going. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's chat about Rodrigo. Then we started uh, getting into it a bit there in part one. He is a young man that is now in the leadership group. And I guess it is a good time to sort of take stock of, of where where he is because so many times we've said, I don't know where he fits. What is he for? How does he work? And then you get one good performance and then you get one bad one. I mean, we saw the very, very worst of it. There's no, you know, sugarcoating what he did against Villa. It was abysmal. And I think it was a relief that he was taken off at half time. Then you fast forward to Norwich and he did look like, for want of a better phrase, like he'd had a rocket up his ass. Mm-hmm. He's not a young man. He's 31. Um, he is a young so he's, man. He's younger, younger than me. John, yeah, no. Um, Jesse Marsh said he's a young man. I'm, um, in, in footballing terms, yeah. I would sort of think of somebody like Jack Harrison as a, a young man. Archie Gray as a very, <laughs> very, very, very young man. Rodrigo's 31 and he's at the stage of his career where I think he would expect to be a bit of a leadership figure. I don't mean be captain or vice captain or, or anything like that. But I think he and, and any club who signed him would expect there to be an example set by him. And that's not to say that there hasn't been. I think what Mars saw with him, firstly, was the fact that he had been abysmal against Villa and he had to be substituted at, at halftime. He was not the only one. I mean, I don't think anybody played um, well on Thursday night at all. But, you know, Bielsa used to do that and everybody got used to it and players, it was, you know, not quite a standing joke, but players understood that from time to time you would get taken off in fairly embarrassing circumstances and it was never personal. It was usually always about the tactical setup in the system and, and rectifying issues on the pitch. And, you know, the same with Marsh, but it doesn't look good, does it? And as a new head coach, new new manager, and someone who will probably feel like he's got to establish himself and he's got to earn a certain amount of respect from, from the dressing room, he clearly realised that he had to speak to Rodrigo about this and he had to say to him, long and short, don't think that because I've done that to you last night, I don't think you're massively important to this team. I am. And so he, he took time to explain to Rodrigo how he's going to fit, how he's going to play him, how he's going to use him. And, and really to say to him, you are, a, from my point of view, you are an integral part of this. There is this situation with Rodrigo, absolutely no doubt, that none of us quite know where he should be playing or where would be best to play him. I can't help feeling that nine would be best for him. But clearly we've got Patrick Bamford coming back and Bamford's 
Bamford made a massive difference in the first half against Norwich. I thought it was really clever actually to play him from the start because quite clearly Leeds knew that they weren't going to get 90 minutes out of him. I think they probably realised that they might only get one half. But it made sense to me, rather than having Bamford in reserve, as they did against Villa, you know, i.e. if we desperately need this guy or if we, you know, if there's a situation that requires it, then we'll go for him. Play him from the start and back yourself to, to play well enough that you'll get ahead in the game and you'll, and you'll get a grip of it, which is exactly what, what happened. And they were diminished by him going off, but they were diminished more by losing Rodrigo on the hour. And it was, I think, an overly negative substitution, that one, Robin Cochin for Rodrigo. It did put Leeds on the retreat. It did make it look as if they were starting to defend 1-0 rather than look for 2-0. For and I don't think, despite what happened late on and, and everything else, I don't think you can pretend that the equaliser hadn't looked like it was coming. I mean, they'd hit the bar, they'd had the penalty appeal, which had been rightly overturned by VAR, but the shape did go. And it was one of Rodrigo's better games, without a doubt. But this leadership group, it's, it's existed at Leeds for quite a while now, right the way through Bielsa's time. And it was... It was people like Liam Cooper and Stuart Dallas and Adam Forshaw, Luke Ayling. And the idea of it was that it was a, it allowed for a bridge of communication between the club and the dressing room. They could rely on this group to maintain the discipline of the dressing room, but they could also speak to them about key issues. So, for example, the wage deferral before COVID. You know, it would go to the senior leadership group first, then it would feed back to the players. It would all be discussed and, and they would work out what they were doing. And essentially this group could speak for the dressing room and the dressing room respected them enough to let them do that. What Marsh felt after he came in was that it wasn't big enough, which is to say that there were people at Thorpe Arch who should be in it and want. So he added Bamford to it, he added Phillips to it, but he also looked at Rodrigo and thought to himself that there was no foreign representation in it. There was no foreign player in this group. And given that you have a squad of Melier, Koch, Llorente, Rafinha, Rodrigo, you know, plenty of foreign players in it, it would help to have that. I think he thought it would help that side of the squad, but it would also help Rodrigo individually to feel like there was a, he had a bit more influence and, and a bit more involvement. And there was a there was, it was chalk and cheese Rodrigo's performance on Sunday compared to Thursday. It's interesting that he's because um, he's Brazilian Spanish is Rodrigo. So you've got obviously the the Portuguese angle that you can communicate with Rafinha. Obviously Rafinha can speak English now, but it's it's useful to have that ally in the leadership group, I guess, isn't it? Plus he can communicate with the Spaniards too. In, like, in native tongue. They're very close, those two. But what you always want to avoid is the development of cliques in a squad or even if it's not cliques, of, of having a having a setup where players tend to gravitate towards certain players constantly, you know, and, and there's there's not enough mixing. And and one of the stories that came up, people will have seen the players out for a meal shortly after Bielsa left and it was no celebration of Bielsa going. It was actually Rodrigo's birthday. They went to the Flying Pizza in, in Round 8 and it was his decision to say... I want to take everybody out. It was the 31st birthday. I want everybody to come and there are no exceptions. Everybody has to Everybody has to come to this. We can all relax a little bit away from the training ground. It's been a stressful few weeks. You're making him um, sound quite precious there, by the way. Everyone has to come to my oh, birthday. No, no, I think, <laughs> I, I, I think um, to put it another way, I want to pay for everybody to okay. come. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being uber generous here. Well, he, my word's not his, but, you know. Please come. I, I, yeah, like, I don't, don't want to find myself sat there with about three people going, oh, no, nobody bothered like David Brent um, at the at the Gardeners or whatever it was. So, you know, there were no exceptions and everybody got together. And, and I think Marsh looked at that and thought to himself, I'd like a bit more of that from him. I think he can give us a bit more of that, a bit more a bit more leadership. And I'm forever in two minds about whether this is going to suddenly blossom for Rodrigo and two years at Leeds will become four and we'll look back on it and say, in the end, that transfer worked. Or whether we're going to hit the summer and we know Barcelona have had a look at him before and whether people will say, Maybe, I don't know, maybe we should cut our losses with this one. Maybe we should go our, our separate ways because it seems to be constantly back and forward. Some games in which you think, this is coming together actually. This I can see I can see some really good stuff here. And then other games where it just doesn't work and, and he doesn't seem like he fits. But but perhaps Marsh will be able to work that out with him. Mm. I, can't, I can't ever remember a player at Leeds who at times has seemed so pivotal and has so often been taken off early in games. Like he seems to be, he's very often withdrawn at half time in matches, which it's quite is, enigmatic, isn't it? It is very unusual for yeah. one of your, for like your record signing to be taken off, to be almost disposed of so quickly. In that you get to half time and you go, well, this isn't working. Let's try Tyler Roberts instead. But I don't think with Bielsa in particular, the transfer for your name or reputation would ever have made any difference to the way in which he, he viewed the team. It was never ever about individuals. 
and that was the that was the basis for everything that went on. It was the basis for uh, so much of of what was was really really good. But perhaps with Rodrigo, that that is a side of him that that people do need to think about of, of finding a way to to help him look like the player he was supposed to be when he was signed for twenty seven million pounds, which is a huge amount of money and is you know quite clearly leads record deal. You know it, it, there's kind of nowhere to to hide from that, and and it does tend to follow you around when you play badly. You know he costs twenty seven million when you play well. Mm, starting you know is he starting to look like actually there's there's some value there. I thought Filippo had a particularly difficult night against Villa and obviously was injured towards the end and, and the news today was that he's looking at about three to five weeks out so he does have a ligament injury but it's not massively serious. I'm not convinced by Filippo at all and, no. and, one, and one of the things that I'm not certain about is the technical side of his game. I honestly couldn't say that about Rodrigo. I've seen plenty of games where Rodrigo hasn't been effective or hasn't been played well but I don't think it's a technical issue with him. It feels to me that it's as much about finding the right place for him in the team. The problem has always been, given the other players here and the way they're set up, where do you put him? Because quite often, putting him in the team would mean leaving somebody else out and that becomes the the toss-up. Although we sort of touched on the tactical side of things earlier on in the show, and this is probably a good point to bring it in, that he did look more effective in that it was like a 4-2-3-1 against Norwich in that sort of advanced midfield attacking role. He was kind of switching places with Bamford as well in that first half. So it gave him the licence to sort of drift into the number nine spot and uh, for all we do put labels on the, the formations Marsh is kind of he's judging by the videos that are out there about his tactical approach and the interviews and stuff he's done he's, he sort of said he's not that sort of wedded to one particular system it's more about how they deploy the players so we saw the 4-2-2-2 uh, against Villa I think it was it just looked awful it was narrow that was yeah. like really narrow and yeah. then we saw that this tweak against Norwich and it seemed to function a lot better there's still times when you were kind of looking at the wide areas thinking get across get across but Broadly speaking, it worked because, well, maybe because Norwich didn't have great players out wide or whatever it might be, but it seemed to function better. Well, they do. They do have very good fullbacks, though, and Williams and, and Aaron's. You know, uh, to, to my mind, too, they're better players. I I think. And if you watch Marsh's system, it it can kind of blend into you know through a game. It can look like four two three one. It can suddenly look like four two two two. When they're off the ball, it can look like four two four because he kind of likes the front line of players to fall back and provide a bit of a defensive shield and pick the moment to to press. But the lack of width against Villa was a massive problem. I mean, a huge problem, and and that was something that they were able to change and rectify against Norwich. I don't doubt that Bamford made a massive difference to that. I mean, you watch him play. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Gilhart, and I think we've actually written a piece again about Gilhart um, for the back end of this week. And you you can't see anything other than him just carrying on on this big climb because he he looks for a centre forward he just seems to know exactly what to do at, at the right times. But there is no better number nine for Leeds at the moment than than Bamford. He's such a nuisance to defend against in a way that other options there just aren't. It's hard to say with Gilhart because he hasn't played enough. You know, I haven't seen enough of him, and I think he's most suited to that role. If you you're not going to give Rodrigo a go there, but compared to somebody say for example like Dan James. Dan James just doesn't cause, particularly on the high balls, just does not cause the amount of bother that Bamford does. Um, and Bamford is a handful to deal with. He's a he's a pain in the neck constantly. He's always there. He's he, he's always doing something. He's always getting in, in amongst it. And it was very easy to see on Sunday how much difference him being on the pitch made to the structure of the team and the, and the success of that structure. And when you look at the players that Rodrigo was surrounded by in that 4-2-3-1, you've got Bamford ahead of him who does all that work. James on the left, who's just non-stop. He's like the Duracell bunny, isn't he? You've got Rafinha on the right, who works incredibly hard. And then crucially, you've got two midfielders behind him, giving him options in the form of four sure a click as it was on Sunday. So suddenly, you've got a circle of players who maybe if he doesn't have the physicality and he's not as quick, that then offers him just a little bit of a cushion. If they are that little bit closer to him, does that sort of work? Well, and don't forget that you've also got Phillips coming back into this shortly. So you're going to have the best of the holding midfielders um, reappearing. I thought Click had a terrific game on Sunday. Actually, I really did. Not so much on the ball as off it. I, I thought on the ball he was he was good, but um, his pressing and his positional awareness was really effective when it came to to stopping Norwich getting going. Certainly for the for the first hour. But you will before long have Phillips back in there, and I think Phillips and Forshaw, Phillips and Click with that four in front, James on the left, Rafinha on, or, or Rafinha on the right, um, on the left, James on the right, because they did switch it up on Sunday and 
I was going to say part of me thinks Rafinha is better on the left or, or could be better on the left, but then he does what he did um, in the 94th minute and, you know, that's clearly on the, the opposite side of the field. But a front four of James, Rodrigo, Rafinha and Bamford has surely got enough in it to give you a great chance of getting the results that you need. I think that's what I said when, when Marsh came in. I said, if we can just stop conceding as many goals, if we can concede one goal in probably all of these games that are left, we'll, we'll get enough points because we've got enough up front to actually win this. If you, there's not, I don't think there's anyone in that, the bottom three who wouldn't swap all of their attacking players for hours. So I know we've, we've been in this situation with Leeds before where you're going down with Mark Viduka and Alan Smith and you're saying we're too good to go down. But we should be we should be with that with that front four. I mean, yeah. there's there's an awful lot of money there if we were to sell them. I think in fairness though, I haven't heard many people this season saying we're too good to go down. I think people have that inner feeling that Leeds probably are too good to go down and will stay up. But I don't think there's been complacency on the part of the crowd at all. I think people have been pretty open eyed to what's going on and the, the pressure that's on the squad. I just think you, you, in the end, you fall back on what you know about players and what you know that Bamford can do and what you know that Rafinha can do. You know, people like Phillips and, and Cooper. I do think Cooper returning could make a big difference to the defence as well, even just in terms of, of communication. Marsh said today the return of those three players was one of the big priorities for him, Bamford, Phillips and Cooper, when he first came in. And it could be that all three are involved at Wolves and if not that then should certainly be involved on the other side of the international break and it does make the team look completely different and just returning to Rodrigo I think the thing that he's good at is situational awareness he seems to know what's going on around him and if we can bring that out of him then that's maybe where he becomes a big asset because like I said if if he's in the middle of that circle of really hard working players and they're closer to him as well maybe that just works maybe it works better for him And and maybe Looking, at, I mean, this is no criticism of Bielsa. His method is what it is, but his distance from the players is well known. If maybe putting an arm around some of them, as Marsh seems to have done, just make them feel loved. Who doesn't like to have a boss that that tells you how valued you are? You know, we've all been in jobs with arsehole bosses, and hopefully we're all in, in jobs now where we've got lovely bosses. We love sure. them, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, great yeah. bunch of lads. Um, but you know what I mean. You, we've all worked for people who are difficult to to be managed by. Whereas, you know, you hope that. Marsh maybe just makes them feel good and, and just makes them believe in themselves again. Well, well, that was the approach between Villa and Norwich, although there's no getting away from the fact that it was Marsh's responsibility to do something about a, a really, really poor game on his watch. And, you know, so soon into the job, it's very... That's why I was saying, you know, the criticism during the Villa game seemed to me to be aimed entirely at the board because how, how can you really blame Marsh for, for any of this or the situation that they're in? Yeah, he, he carries the can for the, the actual performance, but... If you can't see the bigger picture, then there's kind of there's kind of no hope, no hope for you. So I I, I totally totally got that. The other thing with Rodrigo was that I thought his pressing was better against Norwich, and I do think that's a, a side of his game that can improve and probably needs to needs to improve. But he and Rafinha quite often seem to have a pretty good understanding and and to, to link up really well. And you'd just like to see them get into a flow where result starts to follow result and good performance starts to follow good performance and again the, one of the things that has completely gone this season I think is that the, the partnerships and the you know the partnerships start to build up again and things work as they should down the right and it was better on Sunday with, with Ailing out there which kind of kind of makes sense you know it, it starts to work again on the left the midfield know what each other are doing the, the forwards are all linking up in a way that, that's really really effective but like consistently effective you know not just a good spell at Villa followed by an, an absolute abomination against Everton you know Falling into patterns that, that look reliable because there still are plenty of good players here. I, I've said before that if they stay up, I don't think the thing that needs to happen this summer is a massive clear out. I think the thing that needs to happen is a big investment in players coming in. But how do they fund that, Phil? That's the question. Selling Rodrigo. <laughs> With money. <laughs> With money. One for another day, that, I think, yeah. don't you? <laughs> This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu.
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, we head for Wolves on Friday and uh, an 8 o'clock kickoff on the telly, and we've learned from the presser on Thursday that Calvin and Liam Cooper both back in the fold. As you were saying before, Phil, would you expect them to be sort of put in there, even from a psychological standpoint, just getting them back in the group, getting the fans seeing that we're heading towards a fully fit squad, hopefully? Marsh was saying that he'll handle this much as he did Bamford returning, which makes sense because they've all been out for the same length of time, give or take. It's the beginning of December when Cooper and Phillips were injured and went for, for hamstring surgery and haven't been seen um, in the first team since. And it doesn't do anybody any good um, for them to come back and, and get injured quickly again. Although what Sunday did show is that even, you know, 45 minutes for somebody like Bamford can be pretty influential and, and can be positive for you if, if you do it in the right way. They're still basically to decide what's going to happen at Molyneux and what they're going to do with either of them. Cooper has been back a little bit longer, so I think more likelihood of, of him being involved in, in a bigger way than Phillips. But I do wonder if we might see both, given... 20 players you can play with um, in a squad. I do wonder if we'll see both of them back in there, yeah. And one thing we didn't mention about Rodrigo in the previous section was that they are managing symptoms of an old injury. So you wonder how that's impacted his, his season as well because he's a bit touch and go, as we uh, record, isn't he, for uh, for the Wolves game? Well, he came off with the quad injury on Sunday. He's due to train today, which is Thursday. Um, and I think if he trains fine, that'll put him in contention uh, for uh, for Wolves. Bamford also was a bit sore, a bit painful after the the Norwich game, but Marsh was saying he seems to be okay and they're, they're happy with where he's at. So again, he should be part of the part of the 20. And suddenly, you know, there are obviously a few injury issues for Paul, like I was saying, is out for three to three to five weeks. Um, little doubts about Shackleton and Bate and also a, a back injury suffered by Gilhart, which is pretty fascinating given that he was on the pitch for like three, four, five minutes um, on Sunday, you wonder if it was either the knee slide that didn't quite work or if it was the big bear hug from, from Pascal Strike at, at the end. But whatever it was, he's a slight concern. But again, Master's making it sound like he'll probably make it. So suddenly, it is a squad which is not actually that far away from, from full strength, weirdly. What do you reckon in terms of um, style on Friday? Do you think we might see the first real contrast versus what Bielsa did? Because... Marsh spoke in his presser of the importance of not giving a goal away. So will they maybe be a little bit more compact, sit a bit deeper, that kind of thing? Which is not, well, we know what Bielsa would have done. He would have gone there and attacked. How, well, how will this play out, particularly because they play wing-backs? Well, Wolves are having a very good season. You could say they're wildly efficient, really. They don't score a lot of goals, but they really don't concede many either. What you find with them is that if you get in front, very, very good chance of you winning the game. You know, they're not a team who, who tend to come crashing back at you with, with three goals and, and turn, turn the match on its head. But when they get in front, they don't tend to let it go either. And he did reference that. He did say, you know, it's important that we don't go behind because they know how to to manage a lead. Uh, but he also touched on the fact that Wolves don't concede a lot of goals on the counter-attack. They don't allow transition to hurt them particularly. And obviously that is a way that Leeds like to play under Marsh and, and are going to play under Marsh, um, is to, to recover the ball, to, to attack quickly in transition and try and take advantage of, of those those positions. So it will be a, a fascinating matchup, and you're right. I mean, if if avoiding the concession of the first goal is significantly on their minds, then perhaps there will be slightly more cautious cautious approach. But you've you've got to go and try and win these games, I think. And that was apparent in the the Leicester match, Marsh's first match, was that even though it was so soon after his appointment, and even though it was a, a first stab for him at the at the Premier League you've got to give yourself a chance and, and you've got to be in these games. But they are coming up against a really accomplished Wolves side who, who I would say have vastly exceeded expectation given the the general reaction to their appointment of a manager last summer. I mean, in terms of managing a lead, we saw a lot of that at Ellen Road and it involved quite a lot of falling over and lying on the ground. Who are we talking about specifically here? <laughs> <laughs> who aren't we talking about really with Wolves? Yes, it was, no, um, it, um, it was a, good, yeah. it's a good team effort, isn't it, on the... When they're trying to run a clock down from, well, from the point they take the I lead, mean, whether, I mean, it's the, whether it's the goalkeeper, a head injury. I was going to say the one that really, really got on my nerves was the Connor Cody one when a ball was pinged in and it it hit him on the head 
not to the point where it was ever going to do any sort of damage and he just laid down because it stopped an attack and he knew that the game was going to have to be stopped. They're not alone, actually. I think a lot of us felt after the Newcastle game that that was a, a way in which they managed the back end of the game. It was to look like everybody had, you know, just come out of Vietnam, really. <laughs> the thing is, there'll be a lot of people in Leeds who will have enjoyed Atletico Madrid doing what they did to Manchester United uh, earlier this week in the Champions League. I actually really like Atletico. I, I see what they do and I know what they do and I see all the dark arts, but there's a mixture of dark arts with some really quality counter-attacking play and, and when they go forward, some of the passing and the movement and the way that they create chances is, is really good to watch. And I think when you factor Simeone into it, it's, it just feels like complete mayhem and it's hard. I find it hard not to love, really. I, I, it's it's kind of my... It's funny when it's not happening to you. Pretty much that. And, and I think, I don't know, I mean... I, I don't follow the the kind of general theme of what Wolves fans are thinking. I can't imagine many of them don't like the fact that they do know how to manage games oh, like that. It. It's incredibly yeah. frustrating when it's pinning you down and it's holding you back and it feels like it's it's disrupting everything. But Bielsa was a bit of an outlier, really, in that if there was one coach in the entire world who was never, ever going to encourage his players to waste time, it was him. You know, it's never... Never part of the part of the remit, which is to his credit. And it's one of the things I noticed actually against Norwich is that we, for the first time in four years, we started breaking the game up a little bit. And he was doing that stuff. We we were like moaning at the ref, and I thought we don't normally do that. But then you know it'd be taking a breather, and you could see Marsh doing that. You know the hands calm down stuff on the touchline, just yeah. like slow it down, catch your breath again on this throw-in. You know, just take a minute over it, disrupt their throw-ins. For example, as we saw um, over in front of the West Stand, there was a little bit of that going. And wasn't there so. Uh, Maybe we're just like the rest of them. Quite an interesting comparison, the two clubs as well at the moment, because it's clearly happened at a, at a different time. But for them, last summer was the end of the, the Nuno era. And in no way was Nuno, did Nuno have the same sort of cultural impact that, that Bielsa had up here. But you will find murals of him and paintings of him stuffed down in, in Wolverhampton. And he did, he was, you know, the, the face of the period where Wolves turned from a championship club into quite a, a meaningful European force in, in the Premier League. So very well thought of down there, but it did go, you know, it did got a bit sour towards the end, or at least it all got a, a bit flat. And and he left and, and they appointed um, Bruno Lage. And our rules writer, Tim Spears, did a great piece on this, where he was saying when Lage was appointed, there were staff at, at Wolves who had to Google him because they were genuinely saying, I don't know who this guy is, never, never heard of him. And he has a, a kind of, he's done a lot of academy coaching over the year, over the years. But if you look at, you know, if you take the sort of basic route of looking at Wikipedia, there's this massive list of weird and wonderful clubs. Okay, ending with, with Benfica, but very little in it that kind of says this guy is tailor-made for the Premier League and, and tailor-made for Wolves. And actually it's gone gone really well for him. I, I don't doubt with Marsh, and clearly Marsh is coming at a different stage. You know, he's coming mid-season and latter stage of the, of the season rather than the summer, but I don't doubt with Mars that there were plenty of supporters and, and you know, I, I was the same. I had to do some looking into him because I can't pretend that I knew the ins and outs of Marsh's career, but there have been plenty of people who will have had to have look at, looked at him online to find out who he is, where he's been, what his track record is, whether he looks on paper suitable for the job. So there's quite a, yeah, quite an interesting similarity there, I think. And, and when Dave Hockaday was appointed, there was nothing about him online, which was, which was a real challenge. Bell had a no, Wikipedia the, the, page. The, the only thing was his, his, his name second in the list of odds with William Hill and everybody going, who? <laughs> uh, yeah, who is it? Um, Bruno Large reminds me, whenever I see him, he reminds me of Javier Bardem, you know, the actor, Spanish actor who played the, the Bond villain. Do you know the one I mean? No, no. But I'm going to be home Googling him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've got a picture of him. Hang on, so I'll show you. There, there you go. This, this is his Wikipedia. That's Javier Bardem. He's a, he's a much more he's a much more handsome man, I would say. Yeah, but yeah. Not, I was thinking more sort of uh, the Bond villain version of, of Javier Bardem. Um, if you've seen the Bond film, I can't remember which one it is, but um, it's it's that one. All right, well, I'll have it for the purposes of research. I'll have a look tonight. Anyway, <laughs> but they they are a team who very very much know what they are. It will be back three. It is always back three without fail, and they are in good shape. They are in really good shape. They're having a good season. They they can be in and out. They they have periods where they lose games, but they always seem to be able to get it together again. I think they'll be happy with with how it's gone with Large, and it will be an extremely difficult fixture. Yeah, I mean, if I didn't if I didn't have so much invested in the outcome, I'd probably find this quite interesting from that standpoint. In that we don't really yet know what we're going to get from a Jesse Marsh lead side, do we? I, I don't know quite how to call this. Predicted on our show this week that we'd win this, just because, well, why not? Blind hope, uh, optimism. 
But I think we've we've got it in us to to beat just about any side other than maybe the top six See, in, I, in this division. I don't know. I'm concerned that beating one of the worst Premier League teams possibly ever has given us all <laughs> an enormous sense of confidence and we're going to go to Wolves. But look what, we did, have, look what we did against West Ham, Michael. It is, it is within us. I, I, know, I know it is within us, but in terms of the, the way this week has gone, everyone was basically assuming we were in deep, deep trouble after the Villa game, I mean, after 91 minutes against Norwich. You were and probably then, right. And then and, and then you were right with your prediction last week about three points and you've probably called this season bang on all the way through. However, <laughs> I mean, Wolves have got Wolves have got forty six points. Norwich have seventeen. So that is the difference between them yeah. as, as teams go. I, I'm going to say with Michael here and say that something tells me Wolves might be a little bit too savvy for Leeds. I suspect this might be the sort of game that a coach who's been embedded for five six months might find easier to um, to master than a coach who's been in as, as little time as as Marsh has. I mean, they're, they're right on the cusp of European qualification places. Wolves, um, which which tells you a lot about them. They're not unbeatable, um, far from it, and they, they they do lose games, but they defensively they tend to be so good. Well, um, I was going to say we, we looked at the table actually when we were previewing it on our show, and um, they tend to win or lose rather than draw. Yeah. Although for me, I'd be well happy with a draw out of this one. I think the reason for that is that they don't concede many, so they don't lose many games. But when they do go behind, they don't have the goals to get themselves out of trouble either. Um, so it, it tends to fall one way or the other. But it's I mean it's extraordinary when you look at them having conceded 23 um, and Leeds having conceded 65. I mean, so just total opposite ends ends of the spectrum. I think it'll be really tight. I think everything points to it being close, potentially one goal in it, but I, I do think Wolves might just might just have this well, one. Well, I will remain confident and I will say we'll get that one goal and it's going to be Rafinha who scored it. I had a, a, a light bulb moment this week because he's, he's building up to a goal as Rafinha. I thought he might have got the winner against Norwich, but obviously he took it a little bit wide and set up Joffe. So Friday's Rafinha's night. 1-0 leads. If I, was to make, if I was to make one confident prediction, it'll be that at some point during this game, it will appear Jimenez's career is over and then he will be <laughs> resurrected only only 30 seconds later as he gets up off the pitch with someone having picked up a booking. I guess the big question is who's going to play? Yeah. You see, despite how good Bamford was on Sunday, if again he's only good for 45 minutes, perhaps this isn't necessarily the game in which you'd want to do that from the start. Do you not think? I think well, the opposite. I think, it, I, think, yeah. I think he was really useful as an outlet against Norwich. I mean, I, you know, you never like to see us pumping long balls forward, but at least it was there as an option when we needed to retain possession. Because, you know, traditionally, I've seen it gone forward towards Dan James's head this season and thought, well, that's that. We've lost possession there. But miraculously, Bamford kept emerging with it. And I do wonder if... Uh, Maybe they they try it. That's the thing, isn't it? Put out your strong side, try and stay in the game, get a foothold in it and then see if you can nick one. I suppose the only thing I'm thinking is that because against Norwich, the attitude has to be, let's get out, win this, get on top of them. They're hopeless. Let's do them in as quickly as we can. You'd be more inclined to say, get Bamford in from the start. If it's going to be really tight at Wolves and if it's going to be quite cagey for, say, 45 minutes or, or an hour, maybe then he becomes a player who you'd rather have for the part of the game where it starts to become a bit more stretched or where there, there might be more chances. I don't know. That's a really difficult difficult toss-up. And to be quite honest, I, I don't know where, where I would stand on it. I don't think there'll be a vast number of, of changes. I think when Phillips is fully fit, then you start to have big decisions about what you're going to do in the centre of midfield because clearly Phillips plays. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But you've then you've got Forshaw, you've got Cleek, you've, you've got kind of other options. Although I think it will come down to really a choice between those three, and and that becomes that becomes tricky. But I would have thought, given how it went on Sunday, that you'll be looking at Forshaw and Cleek back in there again. I don't I don't think there'll be a vast vast number of changes. As desperate as we've clearly been for Phillips all season, I I don't really want to see him. No, tomorrow night. I think I'd rather with the international break it, it coming come, up. It can come off the bench when we're one 0 up. When Rafinha's scored, just to shore things up, so we can all be dead happy and lifted by his presence. So I just want him to not get injured for a bit. He's got he's got a couple of weeks off. If we can not play him, if we can not play him in this game, he gets he gets a free weekend yeah. next week as well. And we I, I suspect just, that'll be the plan. And if it's not going to plan, we'll only see him if it's not going to plan. Yeah, maybe on the again, like Bamford was at Leicester, get him involved in the squad again because realistically, he's, he's not going to be taking the place of anyone significant on the bench yeah, he's not, and he's, Bates carrying an injury isn't he as well so yeah bear in mind as well that on the other side of the international break you've got Southampton at home and then Watford away again games that you've got to target to take points from so even though everybody would probably be thinking Phillips back in can't come soon enough there's a definite way of balancing the percentages here and deciding when is the right time to, to let him loose and how do you sort of maximise his impact over this three game period because Wolves away Southampton at home 
Watford away, you'd like to think that there will be something in that for Leeds. Yeah, and maybe Bamford is, maybe they can squeeze an hour out of Bamford if his foot's all right. Well, perhaps, and that's the other thing, is that if he is starting to get to the stage of being able to play more than he was on Sunday, then it becomes a far easier decision to play him from the start. I would suspect if it would, if it's going to be 45 minutes again, then that's quite a delicate judgment really, isn't it? It's funny, you know, when we're talking about the midfield options there, potentially when Phillips comes back in, I found it quite stressful thinking about having options in the squad. <laughs> like, oh my God, somebody's going to have to be left out yeah. and put on the bench. It, it was better when Archie Gray was on there. <laughs> just the I didn't have anything to worry yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know you, you're kind of out with the habit, but I think it's a, a habit that they need to get into longer term. And as I say, come the summer, come another season in the Premier League, if, if it does work out that way, the priority and the focus has to be about increasing the squad, not particularly gutting people out of it. I think it's just not... They just isn't the depth of resource that there should be. Uh, just another theme that was picked up on in the, the press conference, um, Jesse Marsh expressing his, his surprise at how good the teams are in the Premier League. found that quite interesting. Yeah, well, I, I suppose he was in the Bundesliga for a short period of time and I don't think many people would pretend that the the standard at the top end is that take out Bayern Munich um, and, and in, a, in a particularly good season, Dortmund and, and Leipzig, you know, they, they, have, they have had really, really strong years. But... In the Premier League, the standard across the board is probably better, certainly in the, the top half of it. And when you get on to analysing teams like City and Liverpool, you're, you're talking about the, the best in Europe. You yeah. know, it's a kind of cigarette paper between them. And I know City haven't won the Champions League, but any season you would have them down as pretty much favourites to do it. And Liverpool not, not far behind either. So yeah, and, and then going back to Salzburg in Austria, there's absolutely no pretense that the Austrian Bundesliga is on a par with um, the Premier League, I think Salzburg are the sort of team who would find a way to, to mix quite comfortably in the Premier League, but the rest of the division, no. So, yeah, no, it will be an eye-opener for him and it will give him plenty to learn about quickly. And finally, then on the 23s, you mentioned Archie Gray earlier on in the, uh, in the show, 10,000 people. Jeans, uh, ten, Jeans. <laughs> yes. 10,000 people at Ellen Road, though, to see the 23s and we have a child score. Um, in an age group, he's, he's just he's just turned it's, sixteen. His school tweeted about it. It was it was wonderful. Someone said to me, "It's you know you have um, you can imagine it's the day for tweets." So um, you know, congratulations to Archie for scoring for the under twenty threes. Congratulations to such and such for yeah. passing a flute exam. You know, and and to such and such on you know winning five hundred words with the with the BBC. Um, <laughs> it's, it was that that sort of thing, which was was lovely actually. I mean, he, he's. Year 11. Big talent. This, this I is can't the, even really remember year 11. Well, this is the mad thing. I mean, I, I played against his school when I was in the sixth form. So like when I was in year 12. So he's younger than I was then. And with the best will in the world, I wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Um, there was genuinely the possibility against Arsenal before Christmas that he was going to break Lorimer's record because... The squad was so thin on that day. It was pretty much anybody who can get here come and fill the bench. You know, it was just, it got to ridiculously extreme levels. And, you know, had circumstances dictated it, it might have been that he'd have had to have come off the bench, you know, the way things are going. It didn't happen. And he's now 16 and everything else. And, and Lorimer's record is, is kind of safe, safe for now. Although there's another grey, isn't there? There, there is another one, and you sort of wonder at this rate how many generations could end up playing for this club. The year could be like, 2,354 and it's, <laughs> well, like it's, it's Eddie's great, 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 great nephew. It's like the gremlins, isn't it? They keep feeding him after midnight so they well, keep multiplying or dropping him in water. That's it, is. it and I think some of the others are, are extremely talented as well. So, I mean, it's a, it's a great story and, you know, great family as well. They really are. They're, they're probably the most famous Leeds United family, you'd, you'd have to say. And I think I saw Michael's tweet actually saying to, to somebody else, the composure of a 16-year-old. Okay, the keeper was doing what the keeper was doing and was just kind of lost in his own world. But in the end, the gap to aim for to score that goal from 35 yards was tiny. Yeah. I mean, it needed, to, it needed to go inside the left-hand post with somebody trying to cover it. And it was just perfectly struck and perfectly balanced. And, what you know, one goal doesn't make a swallow or a summer, but so much has been said about him that you know there's, there's big, big talent there. Marsh was saying today, they just have to manage that sensibly. And, and actually... I, I thought it was quite interesting to hear Bielsa say that he wasn't that comfortable with the fact that Gray was on the bench. You know, the, the fact that he was having to do that wasn't really how it should have been. It wasn't that he was he wasn't a terrifically talented guy um, or, or prospect, but you know, it was a bit soon and it was a bit it was a bit premature, and it was putting quite a lot of expectation on this guy who was was only only fifteen years old. 
But you will see differences with the 23s now. You'll see differences in the way that they play because they will start to now, you know, move towards zonal rather than marking and, and all that, that type of stuff. But you'll also find that at Thorpe Arch, while there will be interaction between the 23s and the first team, and, and Marsh was saying that, that yesterday there'd been a sort of broader training session, you won't now have the, the setup that there was with Bielsa where huge numbers of 23s are involved constantly with the training squad. It'll be selected people like Egil Hearts and so on who will figure week to week and, and are now essentially first team players who will get minutes um, in, in the 23s. So there will be there will be a switch around there. Do you remember back to what you were doing when you were 15, 16? Would, would you have had the composure to sit on a, a Premier League bench? No. <laughs> Very no. The short and correct answer. Yeah. No, I can't really remember what I was doing when I was 15, but when I think back, it'll be nothing as interesting as that. No, no, no. Well, that does wrap up the Phil Hay show for this week. Fingers crossed we get a good result from from Wolves and we can just come back in. And I just, I'd quite like to just enjoy the remainder of the season and say, ah, well, yeah, it was stressful for a time, but, you know, we did it in the end. We are due to... West Ham away is basically the only game that we have won unexpectedly this year. So let's just have at least one more. Yeah, that's... Why not? It's all we ask. One more. And if it comes now, then that could be all the breathing space that's needed. So let's do it. Right, then at the Phil Hay Show on Twitter and sign up for The Athletic. One pound a month for six months. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Back next week. We'll speak to you then. The Phil Hay Show. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.